When the shadow of the sash appeared on the curtains, it was between seven and eight o'clock, and then I was in time again, hearing the watch. It was grandfather's, and when father gave it to me, he said, Quentin, I give you the mausoleum of all hope and desire. It's rather excruciatingly apt that you will use it to gain the reducto absurdum of all human experience, which can fit your individual needs no better than it fitted his or his father's. I give it to you, not that you may remember time, but that you might forget it now and then for a moment and not spend all your breath trying to conquer it. Because no battle is ever won, he said. They are not even fought. The field only reveals to man his own folly and despair. And victory is an illusion of philosophers and fools. Welcome to Redeeming Reads, a podcast where we interpret classic novels in light of the gospel. I'm Taylor. And I'm Dylan. And tonight on the podcast, we are reading The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner. Uh, very interesting a new take for us, for sure. Different style of writing. Uh, but before we jump into it, Dylan, what are you drinking tonight? So I am mixing it up. I am drinking a coffee stout. Oh! So I'm drinking some alcohol. I have a beer. It's a Two Roads Expressway. Um, I think that's what it's called. It is coffee steeped in oatmeal stout, is what it says. Um so I am not a big fan of a lot of beers, but I do like beers that tend to be like coffee flavored or um, I, I think I do like stouts as well. I don't know much about stouts themselves, but what I can say is that I like this. Okay, but do you think it tastes like coffee? This one does, yeah. Okay. It, it really does. I've had mixed experiences with coffee stouts, and that's why I ask, because in theory... That's something I enjoy, but then I find that it's just a dark beer to me, and that's just not my. I don't like. I I like. Uh, I don't really like light beers, but I like an ale that's like brown, like sort of a in between there. And uh, coffee stouts for me are just not it for or all the ones I've tried so far, which is probably just a few, if I'm honest. But that's a great alternative to coffee on the podcast. I thought it was unique. I wasn't even planning on it, but then we had some, and I was like, you know what? This is coffee. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. Are there any like notes in it that you can identify? Or is it just um, it, it tastes like a I mean it's like a it tastes like a dark roast coffee, but it's yeah. good. Like it, it's a good combination because it's also it's like a beer, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it's different than just drinking like a, another like a dark roast coffee. Um, there's something like nicer <laughs> than just that, I guess. Um, it's very chocolatey though. Um, I do. I, I would say that chocolate is one of the notes. So, yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. I enjoy it. It, it tastes like it, it gives you the feeling that you're drinking coffee. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you know, coffee yes. just feels different than most other drinks when you're drinking it, and it feels the same way with this. But it's a beer. That's great. A, a good choice for like the evening time. I think. Well done. That's right. How about you? What do you have? I have a. Kenyan coffee tonight. Uh, it's a Kenya double A, which I found out is one of the higher grades of Kenyan coffee uh, from a coffee roaster called Colonial Coffee Roasters in Ontario, Canada, uh, which I was gifted. 
and it's very new. This one, I think, is on the slightly darker side. Uh, I've had sort of a array of different, um, you know, some are darker, some are, are lighter from this roaster. But this one, I mean, it's not bad at all. It's actually not that bitter. I just think it's slightly, the roast is probably on the darker end of medium, if I were to kind of place it in one one category. It doesn't give any notes on the back, so that's a new experience for me, but... They're going in blind. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe like almost a little bit grassy, definitely on the, the darker, um, little bit, not like super char, but a little bit in those notes. It's not something I typically drink, but not bad. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> okay. It's so grass coffee. and char <laughs> sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in a good way, in the coffee tasting okay. wheel kind of way, you know what I'm right. saying? <laughs> you know, I have never had a, a grass, a good grassy coffee. And I know that like a section of that wheel is, is, uh, grass, but I have never had a good grass note, I guess. Yeah. I, it's not my preferred for sure. Um, definitely more on the fruity side if, if possible, but it's a, it's just a different experience, a different coffee experience. You know, something new, different side of the coffee wheel than I normally venture to. So I'll take it. All right. So the sound and the fury by William Faulkner. So he was born in the South. Uh, he is probably one of the most notable. American authors, uh, maybe ever of any American author. I, I get a similar vibe, uh, to, uh, like maybe like Hemingway in, in his writings. I don't know if you sensed any of that. I felt like it was maybe a mix between Ernest Hemingway and John Steinbeck. Yeah. Similar time period for sure. And like classic American writer is definitely the vibe I got, but Faulkner was from the South. He was born in Mississippi in 1897. I, he died in the 1960s, I think. And he grew up post-Civil War, uh, and that shaped a bunch of his writing, including The Sound and the Fury. He, very surprisingly, he never completed high school, although he did go to college for a few years at one point in his life, but never completed college. Uh, but just got grouped in with a bunch of writers through just all of these connections, um, which is fascinating, and then ended up as a screenwriter later in life, even though he didn't like movies that much, I discovered, which is really funny. It just is how it happened. Uh, but then later in his life, his novels gained more acclaim, and he won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1949, in part for The Sound and the Fury, as well as some other books that um, kind of really gained him fame later in his life that Initially, The Sound and the Fury, though it becomes one of his more popular novels, was not not that impressive early on. Yeah. Isn't um, Absalom Absalom another one of his books? Yes, it is. I think it's pretty popular. Yeah. He had a, he, this, I think The Sound and the Fury was his like fourth novel or something like that. And then um, he, he continued to write and there were several more um, popular books, but he became a screenwriter because his he wasn't making enough money as an author. Like he was struggling sad. financially, which is really mm -hmm. sad. And then, you know, later on, um, he became much more well known 
for his writing. And I think because of the topics he wrote about, um, he was very sensitive to the world around him, what was going on in his day and age, and particularly in the South, in his own, in his own context. And that's what he wrote about uh, in The Sound and the Fury. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's certainly a unique book. It's, I think, the most unique writing style that we've had yet on the podcast. Um, it really pushes the envelope as to what a what a book is and what the the words in on a page can represent. Um, one unique aspect that he employs is having multiple narrators, and we'll get more into this. But um, the first thing about it that gripped me was that. I didn't understand anything that was happening. <laughs> I did not understand the first <laughs> chapter. And it was only when I realized that it's because the narrator in the first chapter is someone who's uh, mentally challenged and is unable to even like describe or, or understand the things that are happening around him or assign meaningful purpose to them. And so immediately as the reader, you jump in and you have to be like really you really have to like try to think about what is being described in order to determine or find out the meaning of what the events are that are actually occurring, which was really unique and gripping. It's not what I expected jumping into the novel. So he uses um, multiple narrators with different styles. And what's funny is that um, I wasn't expecting, I was expecting that the whole book was going to be like that, but really only like maybe half of the book is like that. And then it ends or the second half of the book is like, Pretty much normal writing. <laughs> yeah, so that's we the type of writing is known as stream of consciousness. That's like the the overarching term. But yeah, it's really weird if you've never encountered it before. And I think even if you have encountered it, it's it feels wrong. Feels like you're breaking all of the rules of writing, which he actually is. He um I read that he when he sent his copy of The Sound and the Fury to his publisher he told the editor not to change any of the punctuation because there's sentences that start with lowercase letters there are extremely long run-on parts there are parts that feel like poetry there are a few sections where it was just lines with no punctuation and then you have another line and there's no indication of who's speaking it's not like a dialogue with quotation marks and then then this person says you have no idea you're sort of guessing but he did it in a way that was understandable. And that's probably why his writing was so brilliant uh, to begin with, is that he could play with um, the text like that and still convey uh, emotion and meaning through it, which is super impressive. He also plays with time, which I think is just an added layer of complicatedness on top. You could have stream of consciousness that goes in chronological order, not what Faulkner does. He starts, um, and we'll talk about this more in the perspective, so I'll I'll wait on that. But... Uh, just a fascinating way to really narrate a tragedy, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what this book is. It's um, the tragic decline of um, maybe a once successful family lineage just undergoing like generational corruption. Yeah, and collapse. It's really mm-hmm. sad. Not a yeah. not an uplifting story. <laughs> no, not really. And there's really some, to be quite honest, like there's also some pretty dark... Um, like topics that come up in this book that we're going to be discussing as well. Just, I guess, to warn the listener that there are, there is some mature content that we're going to be discussing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So let's jump into the plot then. So we've, we've already said there's four different perspectives throughout the book. There's four kind of acts or chapters in four the book. Four different days. 
Yeah, four different, four different days and timelines. But when when someone says that, I think it's going to talk about like four definite periods in time. But no, it, it starts off on April 7th, 1928, reverses in time to June 2nd, 1910. 18 then goes, years prior. Correct. 18 years prior. Then goes back forward to the day before the first act to April 6th, 1928, and then ends on April 8th, 1928. Uh, so with half of the more two thirds of the book takes place in, in a three day span. And then one section takes place in um, 18 years prior to those events, uh, which is part of what makes this book so hard to grasp, but also super interesting. Um, so the opening of the book uh, is the perspective is of Benjamin, who is called Benji in the book. It's from his point of view, and it's April 7th, 1928. Um, this is a really kind of difficult part to, to work through, but um, what you gather is that Benji and um, another, another person take a trip to a golf course, uh, and they're observing the golfers, and all the while, Benji's having these flashbacks and these memories of his family, particularly of his sister, Caddy, who plays a major role in the story. She's kind of the center of the story, even though we don't have a perspective of her. Um, we find that Benji is intellectually disabled in some way, which is part of the reason why it's very hard to follow his train of thought. It jumps around um, very much, literally trying to to replicate what the stream of consciousness in his mind might be like as he experiences things, observes things, and remembers things. Um, and this, you know, adds to the confusion of the timeline, but you get a definite sense of uh, who Benji is, how he views his family, particularly his sister, and how he holds her um, in high esteem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Caddy has a really, like, close uh, relationship with Benji, and um, as we will come to find out, her loss of innocence really has an impact on him. And uh, he he's the kind of person who really like senses things in the family and is sensitive towards the relationship of others in the family, even though he may not necessarily know what's happening. Um, and also when Taylor's mentioning these different like time jumps and, and jumping around in the timeline, um, typically it's for Genji, it's if there's like some type of sensory experience that he feels, then that will jar him to into another, you know, decade even. So like time has almost no relevance in, in his thought process. He's just have it all just happens to him at once. Right. And I think there's it. When I started reading initially, I kind of thought it might be the mind of a child. Um, if mm -hmm. I'm honest, that was just kind of the impression I got in terms of not having a good sense of, of timeline. Um, sometimes the characters are children in his yes. memories that are being described. Other times they're adults. And right. it's almost like every other paragraph is, I would say, I'd probably venture, there's probably like 50 time jumps within the first chapter. Yes, it's definitely kind of back and forth. But we do find out that Benji is like 33 in this, mm -hmm. in this portion. So it's just, but you're getting slivers of all different parts of his life throughout. Now, the second section follows Quentin. Again, this is 18 years prior. Um, so he is a student who is at Harvard. Um, his father um, worked really hard and um, was able to get him to go to Harvard. Um, but Quentin, whereas Benji was kind of um, like unable to orient himself to time, Quentin is like hyper-focused on 
time. And he's really concerned about, namely, like, um, I guess, or one, what I mean to say is one element that he is fixated on is his watch, which represents time symbolically, as was described in the quote from the beginning. Um, he seems to have some very unique views on Caddy, who again is his sister as well. He's Benji's brother and, and, and Caddy's other brother. Um, and so he is really distraught when Caddy's um, loses her innocence and namely her, uh, when she loses her virginity. Yeah. He's, he's an interesting guy, but very uh, oriented around death in his narrative section. Also, he's constantly thinking about sort of decline uh, his family's financial hardships. I think he feels some guilt over uh, his family having to sell land to support his, his ability to go to Harvard and, He's kind of mulling over all of these things. He has this deep hatred for some of Caddy's lovers um, and who kind of come in and out of her life during this period. And he's so caught up in all of this. And his his narrative section really sort of declines, even though it's one of the more straightforward sections of the book, I think, though it has some kind of flashbacks um, to it, stream of consciousness style. Um, but... In the end, he he ends his own life in that chapter by by suicide, um, and you get kind of little glimpses of his inner dialogue leading up to that point. The third section is again another time jump back to nineteen twenty eight, um, where you meet. Well, you don't meet, but the, the narrator is one of the other brothers, Jason, who is. Um, he's really kind of like the villain of the novel. He's a really cruel and just brutal um, person who um, now in 1928, we've heard about Caddy um, and we know that she did end up having a child out of wedlock and trying to cover it up, didn't work. Um, and then eventually she ran away and the Compson family adopted her daughter to be theirs and they name her Quentin after the other Quentin, which just adds more layers to the confusion. Um, but Jason, uh, now actually Mr. Compson, the father, um, has since passed. I think he was an alcoholic and now Jason has stepped up to try to be the kind of this family leader, but he's just a, a horrific family leader. Um, he's basically been stealing money that Caddy has sent to her daughter, Quentin. And, um, Quentin herself is really turning out to be very similar to her mother as far as being promiscuous, skipping out on school. And uh, Jason is like stealing all of these checks from her, like a ton of money. Yeah, so Jason is hoarding all of this money. Um, we find out a little bit later that uh, Miss Quentin ends up stealing that money from him. Uh, which enrages him, but that's all his life savings. So he sort of dumps it all into this one spot. But he really sort of illustrates the continued decline of the family wealth and of the wealth of the South in this time period also, from a time when, due partly to the benefits of slavery and agriculture in the South, it was really wealthy. And that's sort of how the Compton family was, you know, years prior to this family's experience. And Jason sort of illustrates the, the very sharp downward decline 
of of the family and he is sort of supporting everyone financially but and he's skeptical of newness he sort of he references the people in the north and how they're like all progressive about slavery and stuff and how that's a negative um thing to him but he is the kind of the the one who's taking care of everybody at the same time but yeah not a positive um positive character at mm-hmm. all and then finally in the the fourth section uh we have Disley, who on April 8th, 1928, so this is two days after Jason's section, um, we have this uh, Disley, who's the, she's the caretaker, she's the uh, servant, black servant in the Compton household. She has been for a very long time. And we get to see how she takes care of Benji and the whole family, really, at this point, now that um, Mr. Compton has died. So she's sort of taking care of the household tasks and making sure everything functions well. Um, And at the beginning of this section, she takes Benji to church with her and you get to see her um, worship on this Easter Sunday, actually. Jason goes to hunt down um, Quentin and uh, the man that she ran off with but is unsuccessful in doing so. I think that the plot spends way too long describing that. (laughs) That episode um, but what's interesting is then at the end it actually converges again with um, a piece of the plot that was described in part one through Benji's perspective and um, and it, it ends <laughs> so it's it's really it's really challenging to comprehend and understand there's no real clear plot or rising action or there's not really one you know um, main event that's driving the book it's all just kind of you know laid out for you to just read and (laughs) try to make of it what you can yeah it's i think it's more of an experience than it is a Mm. a like analysis kind of thing i think that's maybe what faulkner is going for and what many stream of consciousness authors are going for is that it sort of evokes something in you more than it it lends itself to being dissected because it just doesn't work that way. There's no clear rise and fall as you, mm. as you said, um, mm. but definitely some major things pop out in terms of themes. I mean, time is a huge one uh, with this just weird structure to the story that we've, you know, we've talked about. Um, Faulkner really is just playing with the conventional idea of what a novel should look like by structuring it the way he does. It's all sort of mixed up. There's also another theme is just sexual sin. And um, really, like when Caddy Caddy loses her um, virginity and has a child out of wedlock, and one way that Quentin tries to deal with this seeming like betrayal of these values is that he actually lies and attempts to convince his father that he committed incest with his sister in order to somehow prevent like that's a better alternative in his mind than admitting the fact that she truly herself broke this moral code like he doesn't want to see this decline um, occur and his father knows that it's a lie and everyone knows that it's not true but it's just an interesting like expression of his inability to cope with someone else's sin is by lying about his own yeah and some really serious confusion about sexual sin and 
you know, religious, I mean, Christianity in the South at this mm-hmm. time, right? Like yeah. just ideas of purity and uh, a misunderstanding of grace for sure, mm-hmm. you know, at least in part, if not, you know, at least it, in his case, maybe completely, like just does not understand the purpose of, um, you know, Christian belief and theology. It's just, he had it laid out for him maybe in a way that was it's like cut and dry or it's like, oh, like it'd be better to pretend I had an incestuous relationship than for her to be um, just have had extramarital, you know, relationships. It's like, that's just a wild moral jump, uh, but he really believes it. And it's really kind of a sad illustration. Mm-hmm. And then maybe the biggest theme in in the book is just family dissolution and tragedy, a slow decline of everyone in the story. Uh, this is echoed even in the, the title of the book being The Sound and the Fury, which is a line from Macbeth. It's actually uh, one of the most famous ending lines of a soliloquy in a, in a Shakespeare play. And uh, Macbeth says, out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So that really, if you, I think if we wanted to sort of encapsulate a theme for the book, Faulkner sort of picks it for us in that where, you know, Macbeth is saying that life is a, is nothing. It's, it begins and ends and it's a tale told by an idiot and it's sort of meaningless at the end. It signifies nothing is the whole purpose of his writing this, that it, that was something that connected with him and his experience in the South. So he wrote this story as a reflection of that that real sense, a real experience, a real human experience. It's kind of a unique play on like Benji being the narrator. <laughs> Starts out the book telling the story and altogether it signifies nothing. It's almost, right. there's almost a nihilistic sort of theme overall that like, and even again, like with, um, with Mr. Compton, like the father, uh, in the, even in the passage I was quoting, um, the way that he views time and the absurdity of life um, is as if it signifies nothing and all is meaningless. So it's pretty sad. It's pretty depressing, really. It's extremely depressing uh, in this context. There's not many, I don't know if there's a single theme. Maybe we'll get there. We'll talk about that more in our, our gospel discussion um but i wanted to to see if you dylan have wait first have you read any stream of consciousness prior to this book um yes so uh cormac mccarthy is a um, contemporary writer he's written a couple books like the road blood meridian which i've read all the pretty horses i have not read that but it reminded me a lot of his writing style um the way that he like doesn't use punctuation at times and everything um, overall, the impression that it gave me was like I, I enjoyed kind of like uh, putting the puzzle together, especially in the first two um, chapters. As I've mentioned, it seems like Benji's chapter in the beginning is he's just observing things, and you have to find and assign the meaning to what's happening. Like the first sentences, I think, confuse most readers, <laughs> I'm sure, when they pick it up, talking about like sticks and hitting. They were hitting sticks or something like that. And it, what it really means is that there's golfers who are hitting their balls and <laughs> playing golf, you know, but you yep. wouldn't know that because he's the one describing it. 
Um, there's a different type of stream of consciousness that's happening than in Quentin's chapter I found. It was uh, less time jumps and less like confused as far as the chronology, but um, it was a lot more like detailed and abstract, almost philosophical. Like it, it felt like it, you were in the mind of some Harvard student. Yeah. And yeah, so I enjoyed it. It became very burdensome and, and, and tiresome to continue with though. So it was nice that the second half of the book returns kind of to a more normal narration. Yeah, no, I'm with you there. It it's sort of refreshing to go back to a normal normal um, narrative. There were a couple times that I was reading this book, just like sitting in my family room with my wife, and I would just like start like laughing, and I'd just have to read to her like a section of to like for her to understand. Because I was trying to tell her about how funny the writing style is. Um, I actually handpicked a, a specific um, a passage that I wanted to read on this just because... I think it's funny, and it gives kind of a taste of the confusion that ensues. Yeah. If you don't mind. Go for it. Yeah. This is from Quentin's section. I could hear my watch whenever the car stopped, but not often they were already eating. No period, two spaces, italics. Who would play a no period, two spaces? Eating the business of eating inside of you, space two, space and time confused, Capital S stomach saying noon brain saying eight o'clock, no period, double space. All right, no period, double space. I wonder what time it is, what of it. People were getting out. The trolley didn't stop so often now, emptied by eating. <laughs> that sounds about right, yeah. What just happened? What is going it's on? It's like a tornado of words that shouldn't make sense together. Okay, so I have my own. This is less about the words, but I was so thrown by this one page in my book, um, I don't even know what section this is on. I just I just had to mark the page because Dylan, you'll be able to see this, but our readers won't won't be able to to know what's going on. Our listeners, okay. Oh yes, mine has that too. Yeah, yeah. There's just a sketch of an eye. This is a normal book. Just you know, pages, text, and in the middle, there is an eye sketch like on one page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a drawing, but it's like printed as part of the book, not like. Someone took the book and sketched it in there. And it's in part when it's a part that references someone using their eyes and there's just a sketch in the middle. And I was like, what in the world? That's the only one, I think, in the whole book. Yeah, what you're is, right. What is going it's like, on? He's not trying to be funny. He's, he's... No, but it is sort of funny. And it is, I think, yeah. Actually, I think Faulkner has a sort of a funny streak in him, even though the content is so... I don't know. It's just like such a tragedy, truly. But he has sections where you're like, that was clever. Like he was trying to be clever in his connection there. And maybe that's one of them. I just thought that was a, well, a weird a weird choice. But I think the style allows for maybe you do get more in the mind of the characters than you would typically get in. And you get to get in the mind of multiple characters in the story which I think is non-typical uh, in, in a book. I think of some of my favorite authors, and I really appreciate a good moral, um, you know, philosophical debate, you know, something we find in, I mean, even in like Heart of Darkness or in the Brothers Karamazov. But they all feel like they're coming from the narrator when they, you know, like it's the narrator's point of view through the character. And these were interesting because they felt like accurate representations 
um, or plausible representations of what these people are actually thinking. I don't think you get that in typical narration. So it's definitely uh, a, a good style for that purpose. Mm-hmm. And I just wish that he, I just wish that the plot became more satisfying with that stream of consciousness. Like that's such a cool way of writing to me, but it just, he didn't, he didn't bring it home to me. And <laughs> Maybe it's because I haven't read this book tons of times and, you know, studied it or whatever, but it would just be, I just kind of wish that it was a more rewarding plot <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. I, I know there's other um, authors in this same time period that wrote in a similar, with stream of consciousness or sometimes they call it something slightly different, just that it's the thoughts of, of someone like it's an inner dialogue, I think is what they call it in some cases. Um, like Virginia Woolf, uh, does similar, um, and some other major authors do too. So I'm wondering if they might have a more cohesive <laughs> plot in those books that I could appreciate it more. Cause I'm with you. It's, it's almost too just disjointed at times for me. So I hear you for sure. I think it's interesting that the story sort of ends with Disley's section that she's in all the others, but that fourth uh, act ends with Disley as this black woman in the novel. We just briefly touched on it before, but do you think that Faulkner was trying to address slavery or race problems indirectly through her character? Um, or do you think he was not doing that at all? He probably was. I'm sure that he was. I mean, this. I think the it takes place after um, the emancipation, clearly, but there's still ways that in the South, Black people were still being, like, oppressed, you know? It's like, okay, we can't own you anymore, but we can still do everything <laughs> possible to make your lives oppressed. And so I think we see that playing out. And the, even the fact that they, like, own... I mean, they're servants, you know, that, um, not, <laughs> um, I have to be careful, I guess, how I say this, um, this, so the, uh, Disley or I thought it was Dilsey, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Disley's whole family are servants and they, um, work for the Compsons and help out, um, but it's funny because they're always looked down upon, um, especially Jason. Jason is just the worst. Jason is just a racist bigot, and <laughs> he makes that clear. Um, but what's interesting is that Disley is actually the one who seemingly holds it all together. Like Mrs. Thompson is this sick old woman who's just, to be frank, she's just quite annoying. <laughs> I don't know if it's because she's been so troubled by everything with her family, but she is just unable to, you know, rule the house as the oldest adult and so jason steps up and does it but really it's dilsey who is the most compassionate towards benji she's the most like a parent um towards uh quentin and uh of course she is also kind of the beacon of of hope and light and she's the church going um you know black servant who uh is just always optimistic always there to help the family she's really the only like she's like the purest character i think Morally speaking. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting contrast to the rest of the family. That the sort of, ironically in this setting, maybe, in this time of, of just absolute racism, and as you said, despite the fact that technically, you know, 
it, slavery was gone, she essentially was still a slave to the family, that they're the ones in absolute disarray and falling apart. And she's sort of this selfless central figure holding pieces of this broken family together. And even then, she, I think, represents like a a faith. And maybe that's part of her going to worship. There's a faith and a traditional pattern that she has held together more than the family has. And that's almost like a hopeful vision, I think, of of the South even, right? And I think it's sort of brilliant of Faulkner. I think the best way he illustrated uh, and pushed back against racist sentiments was just showing her in that light and as a, a normal person functioning in that world, but one that, you know, really was stronger than all the other characters in the book, as far as I could tell. It was pretty, yeah. pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. So what do you think that each of the individual perspectives represent in the story? Um, do you think that the characters are uh, any like an allegory <laughs> for different types of beliefs or values or perspectives? Yeah, I don't know. I think you can sort of paint them based on their vices. I think that's one take, one perspective um, you can have. Um, for, I mean, for Benji, it's not so much a vice, but just a limitation, right? It's just he he has this this disability that doesn't allow him, yeah, to it doesn't allow him to to see you know kind of the world um, in a in an ordered way or to see his family in in an ordered way. And he does in his own way, but only in in snippets. And then you know, with Quentin, you have this sort of. Uh, obsession that results in in suicide, but this despair over loss of value, I think, ultimately, right, is like he's ashamed of his family, and that's a major theme also, is this shame over his family sort of just tears him apart intellectually and mentally to the point where he's driven to suicide because of everything that happens. Um, and then Jason, who's obsessed with money, and that's the thing that he feels the burden of supporting this family. And that's the thing that ends up, you know, sort of undoing him. He has nothing left at the end. You know, it says his life savings that he's also stole from someone else is completely gone at the end. Like everyone seems to have this sort of, I don't know, Achilles heel in the story. And I think maybe they're slightly painted in an exaggerated way, Um and that's the only thing that made me maybe gravitate towards, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's allegorical, but they, they are sort of representative, each of them. Um, I think even, you know, Caddy with the, the, you know, sexual promiscuity, like that's a, a vice for her that's, you know, clearly painted. And I think each of them sort of represent those things as a, fuller representation of the decline of the family like this is all around moral decline but each one sort of picks his own his own thing in that yeah i saw it almost as um each chapter and perspective was a different perspective on time itself and the ways that we react to the ways that we think about time and like particularly benji's just kind of unable to um make sense of past or present or future it's all jumbled together um quentin seems just utterly caught up in the past so much to the point that he 
like literally wants to stop time through like his, you know, through literally ending his life, maybe avoiding the future. Um, and I think maybe you can see Jason as being the more future oriented um, as far as like stealing the money and, and um, you know, looking forward into what he's going to do with it in the future. Um, but it makes him like the worst character. Like he's just a cruel person in the present. He's not compassionate. Um, and then if, if these perspectives are, are true, then I think it finds that the book finds some resolution maybe in Dilsey when she goes to church, um, afterwards she says something she's, I think she's like quoting or trying to quote some scriptures. She says that she's seen the first and the last, um, kind of like the alpha and omega, which I just thought, thought was a really cool, like time, um, like phrase phraseology to use that like maybe she in her hopefulness and her faith has actually found something that surpasses time altogether like the eternal state of you know beyond past present or future yeah no that's a great i didn't i didn't catch that with with dulcie at the end there that's that's a fascinating take on again how she sort of transcends them like all caught up in this thing going on but she has this eternal perspective that I think, you know, in some ways she's sort of identified as the literally a suffering servant in the family. Mm -hmm. Like she's so, (laughs) she's so burdened by what happens in the family and she is being like actively oppressed at the same time by them Mm -hmm. and all of their drama. But she Mm -hmm. has something that she's holding on to that's outside of them. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's that eternity. She has something beyond all of these other <laughs> messy people that she is, mm-hmm. she's latching onto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's certainly like, she's got to, now that I'm thinking about it, she's got to be like the hero, <laughs> you know, if we had to have a hero or if we had to put a Christ figure in there, it's certainly, certainly her. Yeah, definitely. As we move into our reflection on how we can interpret this novel through the light of the gospel, um, what do you think is redemptive about this novel? It seems like it's so tragic overall, and if anything, just obscure as to what William Faulkner was really trying to get across to the reader, at least upon the first read of the book. Um, what what could be so redemptive about the story? Yeah, I don't... I mean, we just talked about... Dilsey and her character, I think that is a redemptive moment in the story, but still overwhelmingly the rest is not very redemptive explicitly. And I guess my thought about what makes this redemptive is that we need accurate representations of human nature in order to identify our brokenness often. And I think this book does a good job of like of just illustrating a realistic view of a very broken family, you know? And the the way it makes you feel about, you know, your own brokenness and the brokenness of of time <laughs> and just human human nature, I think is something that pervades this whole story. Um, the vibe it gives me is Ecclesiastes, 
right? In terms of the fleetingness of everything. I think that's very much, I don't know if that's where Shakespeare was inspired from. I know Shakespeare used a lot of um, biblical language, but when he, you know, made that Macbeth soliloquy um, that, you know, someone is here and then they're gone and it signifies nothing. You can do all of these things. You can build whatever you want. You can marry all of these people as Solomon did. (laughs) And at the end, it's meaningless. It's vapor. It's a mist that's gone the next day. Um, And I think having a really uh, accurate view of human nature is really helpful for me in my, like, in pointing me towards a redemptive story, right? It's like, this is why I need redemption. Um, Because I think we forget and get, get into patterns where you're just not thinking about um, how fallen the world is, particularly when things are going, you know, well, maybe for you. But this is a really sort of maybe sobering view of what, like, time and um, your the pursuits in your own vices, what the ultimate result is. It, it's just the human story, I think. That's true. What, what do you think is redemptive for you? Or do you, do you, like, see that assessment? Yeah, I second that. And, you know, I was even thinking earlier today about, like, man, how are we going to, like, record this podcast on this book? Because Just because thinking about how it's, you know, it's it's really not a super, <laughs> like, uh, Christian book. Or it's not like I can't, like, really um, stand behind a lot of the moral stances just thinking about, like, the incest and the sexual promiscuity that it at least touches on um, or uses as plot points. But then I also in my like Bible in a year plan this morning to read about when Judah sleeps with his son's wife, Tamar, (laughs) you know? And so what I mean to say is in the Bible, the Bible also deals with these things. Like just because the plot point is in there doesn't mean that it's, uh, you know, saying that it's a good thing. In fact, like as scripture itself tells the story, especially in the Old Testament, we see some of the far reaching depths of human depravity. Yet, like we need to know that, like you're saying, you know, we, we need to, at, at times, I think there's appropriate times to look human evil in the face um, and, re- and and kind of maybe see our reflection in that, right? Be convicted of our sensing ourselves as maybe even, um, you know, the bad guys who we, we need redemption and we would be no different apart from Christ, you know? It just, I think it's helpful to self-reflect on yeah, a realistic view of sin and what it does and what the curse really brought into the world and the ways, especially like in this book, that it affected families and interpersonal relationships and uh, social justice even like among the South and racism at that time. Um, that's the reason that we so treasure the good news that we can have separation from that sin and that we're no longer bound by our own sinful nature that we just, even as saved Christians just can't shake and can't quite get rid of, you know, we're, we're being sanctified and growing holy and changing. We have a change in our direction, you know, but that does, we're still not perfect. And so I, I guess it's just helpful to, in appropriate ways, get these reminders of, of the curse really that um, all of humanity is under because that's the backdrop for the grace of God and his gospel, which saves us from those things. And I think that we should only 
you know, we should view these or see these evils only so that we can be pointed to redemption. You know, like how how sad would it be just to read this book and, and not and just walk away from it as like, all right, that was just a pessimistic, nihilistic view of human evil. Great. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so it's helpful, I think, for the Christian to point them back to the gospel and remember, um, you know, why God's grace is so good. St. Augustine um, talks about like this idea of um, happy fall or Felix culpa, a fortunate fall. So when we reflect back on our sins, well, it, that should point us again to Christ and be hopeful for us. Yeah, all of that. I think applies here. This, for me, I think the the gospel intersection in the story is that, like, that the gospel is for Benji, right, and and for renewal <laughs> for for him and and for Caddy, who's sexually broken. Like, <laughs> Jesus came to save the sexually broken, and he came to save the poor and those who were held captive by their money, right? Like that's, that he, Jesus came and he preached to those people and he told them like, you can be free from that for all the Jasons, right? Who, who are just completely captivated by that thing. But the gospel redeems all of these people for the, the despairing, the suicidal, right? Like the gospel is for them in that moment, um, to, to give them something beyond their world, right? Like beyond their, just the, the dome of brokenness in their, in their world that they can't see beyond and the gospels for them. And I think you, you really nailed it there with the, the Judah and Tamar story, right? It's like that God wrote the story of redemption through that brokenness, um, is absolutely crazy. And I, I think for, for the Christian reading this, you go, well, God, could write the story of redemption through this family too, as broken and confused as it is. It's like, I see, I see Israel in, in these people. I see myself in these people. Like that's, that's the whole story of redemption. And I think one thing that Faulkner put in that I mentioned earlier is that the events happen on Easter weekend in the story. So, so good Friday is during Jason's section and then Easter Sunday um, is when Dilsey goes to church that morning. Um, I didn't think about the Good Friday. That's interesting. Yeah, like there's, there's, that is not accidental. And I, I don't like, I don't want to read too much into what Faulkner is doing. But the fact that Dilsey's day falls on that redemptive Sunday, like for me, I, I maybe this is just reading with Christian eyes, you know, I might be reading into his stuff, but like, for me, that's, that's the equivalent of saying that there's redemption in, in this story too. Um, and even if that's just Dilsey's story and, and that's all there is, um, in terms of giving us a vision into it, you know, what happens in the future. I think, um, I think Faulkner writes an epilogue to the book that I haven't read, but there might be more details in there. But I think they're also like, it, it's not very positive in that either. Um, <laughs> but it, for me, there is this element of redemption in the, the Easter story, right? Like that there's a big part of what's going on, um, even if it's subtle and in the background, is that there's that it's not without hope um, in this time setting. Yeah, yeah it's so good. Well, it feels better to have, like, um, I guess, spoken about the redemptive aspects of this book here in the <laughs> podcast, just doing me, because, like, 
it's a dark book, man. <laughs> it's not the most happy book to read. We we need more people to read it and offer their their point of view. I think that'd be good. That's right. That's for our audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need feedback on this one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Next month, we're going to be reading uh, Catch Twenty Two by is it Joseph Heller? Is that his first yes, name? Joseph Heller is is the author of Catch Twenty Two. Have you read this book before? I have not. It'll be new for me. I know the phrase, but I've not read the book. <laughs> yeah, which is interesting. I'm sure we'll learn all about the, the phrase. Also, I really want to read Macbeth now. Macbeth can is I just, a gr- Can I say that? Can I like drop a hint? Yeah. No, I think a, a Shakespeare replace definitely in the cards for the podcast at some point. Um, you know, like the classic of all classics, really. Mm-hmm. And Macbeth is a great one. Mm-hmm. I was uh, in a Macbeth play. <laughs> In middle school. <laughs> Are there pictures of this? <laughs> there is not. Thank goodness. But I had to do a sword fight. I was the guy who kills Macbeth, I think. Whoa. Macduff, uh, which is intense. But I had to be in a sword fight with like giant wooden swords. It was awesome. That's so great. Yep. I also just want to add that in the English class that Taylor and I took where we fell in love with literature, I think, or Joseph Conrad at least, um, we had... We watched the Othello movie from like I don't know early two thousands, and that we, I don't know. I just have memories of like cracking up at one of the scenes. In that movie. Now I feel like I have to watch it again. This is a great. That's that's the wreck for this podcast. Go home and watch the Othello, the old Othello, movie. <laughs> yeah. which might be the newer one. Actually, it could be. It's quite but... possible. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.